This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Hey, podcast listeners. Have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention Propaganda or Backtalk when you donate. We'll read some of our listener love on the air during the next shows. Thanks so much. In case you've been hiding under a rock recently, you should know that there is something going on in Hollywood. Two-time Oscar nominee Viola Davis with Nichelle last night. The problem is not with the Oscars. The problem is with the Hollywood movie-making system. Viola Davis, Jada Pinkett Smith, Ava DuVernay, and many, many others have been calling out the whiteness of this year's slate of Oscar nominees. On front pages and primetime TV, they've connected the dots between the lack of diversity at the Oscars and the systemic racial discrimination of the whole film industry. Today, we want to take a look at systemic racial discrimination in another part of our pop culture, the publishing industry. Books don't have an awards show as flashy as the Oscars, so the issue of diversity in publishing probably isn't going to wind up on Entertainment Tonight anytime soon. But if books did have an award show that was as much of a media spectacle as the Oscars, it would probably be just as white, or likely even more so. A 2015 survey by Publishers Weekly found that 89% of people working at publishing houses are white. There's been a lot of organizing to diversify the publishing industry. For example, a campaign called We Need Diverse Books has been publicizing the demand for more books by and about people of color. But change has been slow. The publishing industry, from top to bottom, often seems to move at a glacial pace. On today's show, we're exploring the impact that the overwhelming whiteness of the publishing industry has on how Americans write, read, and respond to books. We talk with journalists about the complexities of writing about race, and we'll hear from authors in Los Angeles, Colorado, and Montana about what it's like to be a writer of color in a very white industry. let's start somewhere close by, your public school library. A lot of Americans really don't like talking about race. You want to make a room of white people feel awkward? Bring up race. Late night host Stephen Colbert joked about this on his show last week when he was interviewing racial justice organizer DeRay McKesson. Stephen Colbert noted that one night on his show, he wore a bracelet reading Black Lives Matter, and some people got really angry. Why do you think people get so mad about uh, the idea of Black Lives Matter? Because it's an idea as much as a, of, as a movement. Yeah, I think that people are uncomfortable talking about the racist history of this country and what we need to do to undo the impact of racism. Mm-hmm. And people would just like to act like we don't have a legacy of racism here. So I think people get really uncomfortable with it. But we know that we can't change it unless we address it, right? One important way of addressing race is to read about it. Books are both a vision into the lives of others, people with different racial backgrounds and different lived experiences than us, and a representation of ourselves, a way to reflect society. It's very interesting to look at what books make Americans the most uncomfortable. Well, hello, Sarah. I am Kristen Peacol. I'm the assistant director with the Office for Intellectual Freedom with the American Library Association. Kristen's job at the American Libraries Association is to help keep track of censorship. Specifically, they help out schools and libraries when somebody tries to ban a book. Books can get banned in a couple ways. A parent or a teacher can challenge the book and say it shouldn't be on the shelf. Or a person in authority, like the principal, can just remove the book. This might sound archaic, but it actually happens pretty frequently. Last year, we had 311 reports for, the, for 2014. Wow. But we also estimate that that is only about 15 to 20 percent of the challenges that are actually occurring. Tell us about the books that are being challenged. What patterns do you see um, within what kind of books are getting challenged? Is it mostly the same books getting challenged over and over and over? Yeah, it really is. If you look at like the lists from like the last decade of the top 10 books, you're going to see a lot of reoccurring titles. Um, the Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chebesky, Persepolis 
by Marjane Satrapi, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. When the ALA counted up all the books that had been banned last year, they saw something alarming. The books that received the most pushback were mostly by or about people of color. Right, so when we took a look at last year's titles, um, we started to notice that the author was either um, not white or it took place not in the United States. The main characters might have been not white or not straight or not Christian. And we're like, what is this saying about our culture that people don't want these books on the shelf? And it's not always why they said they chose to challenge it. You know, they usually say it's, you know, sexually explicit or it's bad language. But a lot of times, I mean, a pattern like this where eight out of the ten books, it's hard to say that it's not for the reasons of diversity and race and sexuality that people are choosing these books. So eight out of the top ten books that that saw the most challenges last year were either by people of color or focused um, on people of color or took place not in the United States? That's correct. And so and so, what you're saying here is that the, the reasons people give for challenging these books um, might not always line up with what they're actually thinking. So they might right. say, you know, like Persepolis, for example, which is my uh, the artist and writer Marjane Satrapi, which is set in Iran, they might say this book is sexually explicit. But there might be another, but there's, but there's a pattern here of, of being more critical and having more scrutiny of books that are by people of color or focused on, on the stories of people of color. Right. And if you look at the reasons why someone might have said they wanted to challenge Persepolis, um, they said it was the political viewpoint, offensive language, and gambling. And this is a graphic novel where it depicts I believe she's about 10 years old um, during the Iranian Iranian Revolution. It's it's an incredible story about a time and a place through the eyes of the innocent. And if you think about our childhoods in the West, there's just this this difference. It's the, not the status quo. And I think people are just uncomfortable with that idea. And rather than say, I'm uncomfortable with, you know, the Middle Eastern culture being taught in schools, I'm going to challenge this book and say that it's actually just because of the offensive language. So let's take a look at a book that's set in the United States, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. This is, this is frequently on the top 10 list of books that are banned. What sort of reasons do people give for, for wanting this book out of their schools? And what do you think is actually lying underneath that? Well, many people have said that they, the book is unsuited for the age group or the violence it's culturally insensitive, the drug, drugs, alcohol, and smoking content, and sexual education are sexually explicit. And because this book deals specifically with um, a Native American teenage boy um, kind of putting himself into a, a white culture, he's seeing things that are happening in white culture that I think many white people are, don't want to see in themselves. He's mm-hmm. holding up a mirror to people, and they're not liking what they're seeing. And so they would rather just take away the book. Well, I think this is so interesting because, like, the role of literature and and books is, in, in a lot of ways, to expand our horizons and to, to make us think about things that we wouldn't normally think about in our daily lives and to push us to think about different perspectives and new ideas. And so it's it's just kind of alarming, I guess, to see people say, you know, I, I don't I don't want that to happen. You know, that, that these are books that are pushing boundaries for people. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's what they're made for. You know, that's why we read things in school, especially in communities that are um, not diverse. It, reading fiction can often expand those horizons. It can lead to empathy. It can show people cultures and worlds and beliefs outside of their own and that more dis- the more diverse perspectives that we have widely available to us, the more we can learn about things. Um, independent reading really is a learning process. It allows for people to choose different things and, and have knowledgeable choices and exploration. Um, and we need those in order to create thoughtful citizens, people who have independent thought and can make decisions in our world. Book banning isn't a thing of the past. 
Even today, books that deal with material that some readers are unfamiliar with, like life experiences that are colored by race and racism, prompt some Americans to say they should be banned. But those kinds of books that push boundaries are good. Like DeRay McKesson said, we can't change it unless we address it, right? Hi, Amy. Hey. This is Amy Lamb. She's the associate editor of Bitch Magazine, and she's here to share an essay with us, right? Yeah, I'm really excited about this essay. Tell us about this essay and uh, who wrote it and where you found it. So um, I'm in the group that's uh, comprised of like writers and artists of color locally in Portland. And it's it's a really casual social group, and we just get together just to like hang out and support one another. And within the group, we have like smaller groups, you know, specifically for writers or performance artists and things like that. But we have like a secret Facebook page. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a secret club. Um, but uh, oftentimes like folks will post random things in there just to be like, hey, heads up, this is happening or like check out this essay. And another writer in the group, he posted a link to this essay and um, it really hit home for a lot of us in the group. And um, it just speaks a lot to like writing about race as a person of color. Great. Well, what's the title of the essay and who wrote it? It is called Report from the Field, Racial Invisibility and the Erasure in the Writing Workshop by Lisa Lee. And where was it published? It was published on VidaWeb.org. And uh, Vida is an organization that promotes women in literary arts. And so it's a great place to learn more about like um, women and particularly uh, women of color representation in literature. Great. Well, let's hear this essay. You're going you're gonna to read aloud for us. Lisa Lee, the author of the essay, gave us permission to read it on the show. And you're going to read it in her stead because she has a newborn child and is, the child is screaming in the background all the time. <laughs> well, that's what she says. She's like, my newborn is crying a lot. And then she explained why newborns cry a lot. Uh, the, and it's because I guess they have to fart and they can't. So <laughs> they're, they're crying until they can. And then after they can fart, they're like happy babies. Um, so that's why I'm reading her essay for her because her baby has to fart a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for, for reading this essay, Amy. Let's get into it. In a novel excerpt, I turned into workshop. My narrator uses the word chinky. My narrator is a Korean-American woman speaking to a successful Chinese-American woman, accusing her of being a sellout. One of my peers in the workshop, another woman, white, circled that word, chinky, and wrote in the margin, really? Seems too harsh. On another page, next to a description of the narrator expressing anger at impossible beauty standards, which for Asians can mean looking more white, she wrote, what? Wow, really? After class, reading this, seeing the circles and arrows drawn on the page, I felt a discomfort that I've grown too accustomed to, a feeling that was once paired with shame, later with anger, and now with annoyance. It's triggered when I'm confronted with a person who is confused or surprised that my racial background and immigrant family would make my experience different from her own, or when a person is surprised or in disbelief that racism exists, affects people's lives, or that I think it shouldn't be tolerated. I talk about race in nearly all conversations. I don't care if I make someone uncomfortable, if it costs me something, a connection, a job, a fellowship. Not talking about it costs me more. I write fiction about race and its intersections with gender, class, and sexuality. Now I feel a tension when I talk to white people. Often I detect fear, intimidation, and anxiety of my judgment. Paired with this, I sense bitterness and envy. White people have told me that they feel left out of the conversation on race, that people of color assume their ignorance, that they feel attacked, that they're disadvantaged and missing opportunities because they fear that institutions and the publishing industry are trying to promote diversity and fill minority gaps. Never mind that these institutions still are and have always been dominated by white people. For example, nearly 90% of full-time professors are white. 
nearly 90% of publishing industry is white, and nearly 90% of books reviewed in the New York Times were authored by white writers, according to Roxane Gay's 2012 study. The woman I described in the opening of this essay repeatedly confused my fictional narrator with myself, making it clear that she was reading my fictional novel as a memoir. Critics, readers, and writers tend to believe that writers of color are only capable of writing autobiography, that the land of imagination and creativity is for white people. Writer and artist David Mirror writes, quote, the divide between the way whites and people of color see the social reality around them is always there in our society. But this divide often remains invisible or obscured especially in our current climate where the issues of race are avoided rather than discussed. A friend of mine committed suicide last year. She jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. She was a public defender, a generous person, a happy person. I had never heard her complain about anything or voice a negative opinion about anyone. She had no history of mental health problems or at least had never been diagnosed with one she left no note. Before she jumped, she finished her work at the public defender's office where she had been employed for 10 years. Cases that could be completed, she closed. And for those that needed to be passed on, she wrote scrupulous notes and relayed the files to coworkers. Everything was taken care of and in order. She drove six hours from Southern California to San Francisco. The video surveillance footage shows her walking calmly, alone. My friend was Indian American. In several studies that specifically examined the incidence of suicide among Asian Americans, and particularly Asian American women, research shows that there is a far greater incidence of suicide, suicidal thoughts, and suicide attempts among Asian Americans than among other ethnic and racial groups. My grief for my friend and her family overcomes me at times, with no warning. Assimilation, the whole model minority myth, it's a way for white America to uphold one community of color at the expense of others, to reinforce racial hierarchy, and render discrimination against Asian Americans invisible. The need to make race invisible is damaging to the psyches of people of color. The racers of our histories, our experiences of discrimination, and the trauma of how we got here cause gaps in our identity and consciousness. It heartens me to know that more people are talking about this in the media. Let's keep the responses coming. Let's make ourselves be heard. was an essay by Lisa Lee, who's the recipient of the 2016 Pushcart Prize for her novel excerpt Paradise Cove. Her work has appeared in Plowshares, North American Review, Sycamore Review, Gulf Coast, and elsewhere. You can read the full essay at vitaweb.org. We'll link it from the podcast page on bitchmedia.org. It was read by Amy Lamb. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today we're talking about writing about race and the overwhelming whiteness of the publishing industry. Ari Laurel is a writer living in Montana. For a while, she was enrolled in a graduate writing program at the University of Montana at Missoula. But she wound up quitting the program. In this essay, Ari explains part of the difficulty of writing freely and honestly in an MFA program that expected her to cater to white audiences. The moment I made the decision to write about my political communities back home during my first semester of my MFA program, I knew I would hit some walls. It's ill-advised to write about politics this way, my professor said. Traditionally speaking, it doesn't work. Politics are told through something universal, a love story, a coming-of-age story. I understood what he meant. The kind of universal story he described was the kind of writing that got me into my MFA program in the first place. I knew how to write that story, I just wasn't sure I wanted to. It felt strategic, 
It felt like performing. It felt like hiding. For many of my friends in my native Oakland, California, social justice is their work and love, and it guides moral decisions and relationships. They are community organizers, social workers, writers, advocates, and activists, meaning certain conversations and certain terms are commonplace and unavoidable. How would I represent myself and these people honestly if I was expected to erase what was most important to them? I grew up reading and writing about white people. There's no inherent problem in writing white, but when I did it, it was because I knew I didn't belong. I could name all the famous Asian Americans in popular culture on one hand. Teachers pointed me to the Joy Luck Club and novels just like it. But I could never see myself reflected in these works. I could see my grandparents and perhaps my mother, this generational dilution of the immigrant experience but I could never see me. When I wrote, I wondered who would care. As far as I was concerned, there was no place for me or my kind in the world of creative people. That was until 2010, when Karen Tay Yamashita published I Hotel, a brick of a novel that tells about the Asian American experience and California's political landscape in the 70s. The Chicago Tribune called it a glorious failure of a book wishing the novel were more traditional. But iHotel was nominated for the National Book Award and became the recipient of the California Book Award for just being the way it was. More significantly, for me anyway, this work reached out and reassured me that my concerns were more common than I realized. Not bad for a glorious failure. Before the show Fresh Off the Boat premiered in 2015, Eddie Wong wrote a biting piece about how his memoir, which inspired the show, was adapted to a cookie-cut ABC comedy. He writes that his real-life story was compromised to create a show that would play well with a white audience, altering his memoir to the point where it no longer resembled its source material. The network's approach was to tell a universal, ambiguous, cornstarch story about Asian Americans, Wong writes. But who is that show written for? Wong details how he sought counsel from Margaret Cho, an Asian-American media legend who told him he must keep on fighting. After the first TV spot aired, his friend enthusiastically exclaimed, You got Asians on TV! It's no doubt a victory, but it's also damn depressing. It shows just how invisible we are, just how low the bar has been set, and how American storytelling as it stands now makes it hard for some to even meet it. It's hard to tell your own story to a broad audience when you have been deemed other from birth. We ought to be proud that we made it to TV, but we also ought to be so indignant that we can't stand it. What does the word universal actually mean? For decades, the federal government used intelligence tests to measure a student's mental capability. But researchers found themselves in hot water when scores were used to back eugenic claims. Minority students performed consistently worse than their white counterparts. IQ scores sealed the fate of people of color, limiting economic mobility and even controlling immigration. Some began to criticize these tests as racially biased. The problem, they argued, was cultural. As evidence of this, psychologist Robert Williams created the Black Intelligence Test of Cultural Homogeneity, also known as the Bitch 100. The test drew on the cultural context of Black students using their own awareness as the basis for unbiased measurement. Just like that, the scores flipped, suggesting that there is no such thing as a culture-free test. Similarly, we've seen a shift in the perceptions of films made by people of color. Movies have catered to white leads for so long that executives actively dismiss actors of color, as with the recent Sony hacks that revealed the hesitancy to cast Denzel Washington. An article from the Washington Post shows how the history of filmmaking, right down to the technology, has been catered to whiteness, the films flattening faces of color, hiding them in shadow, or else making them gleam with sweat and grease. Recent films such as Selma, Fruitvale Station, and Dear White People have flipped the way stories are typically told, centering their narratives on people of color. After receiving criticism about the depiction of President Johnson in Selma, director Ava DuVernay told Rolling Stone she wasn't interested in making a white savior movie. 
Like The Bitch 100, this new shift offers a glimpse into what media might look like if it had always been this way, if Universal were defined in someone else's favor. It seems like such a small thing, but it's actually huge to see a focus on people of color in a medium that once aided in their erasure. People often ask why diversity is important. A recent Scientific American article titled Diversity Makes Us Smarter, again, note who the article is addressing when it uses the word us, cites a group's ability to more easily solve complex problems when it's more diverse. This too translates to the world of the arts. When we're asking for a different kind of story from the one being told, we should consider the stories we might be silencing. When there is an appeal for something more universal, more traditional, I can't help but interpret it as an appeal for something more like us. The definition of universal is owned by those whose stories have already been told and told with complexity. Writers who lie outside of this boundary are pressured to adopt the same stories, the same language, used and approved by others. Readers who have never seen themselves reflected back are expected to continue to not exist. Using universal to enforce only makes our stories narrower, but using it as an opportunity to explore the lives of others, so unlike our own, takes back the term and gives it the meaning it's meant to have. Now, I can name names of writers of color whom I hold close as composite mentors. I feel as though there has been a small niche carved out, which I must not only fill, but continue to chisel away at. That was Ari Laurel. She's no longer an MFA student, but she's still a writer. She's a blog editor for Hyphen Magazine and is now doing social justice programming for the YWCA in Missoula. You can follow her on Twitter at Ari, A-R-I, underscore Laurel. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about race and writing. One of the big issues we've been exploring on today's show is the concept of gatekeepers. Since the publishing industry is 89% white, it's mostly white people who are making decisions about what books should be published and what authors should be hired. Race colors our subjective understanding of what makes something powerful. Experiences that would profoundly resonate with some readers wouldn't with others because they have different life experiences. So what is it like to try and get a book published if your book is about a person whose identity is often stereotyped, pigeonholed, or altogether ignored by white-dominant pop culture? Author Erica Wirth knows a lot about this. Erica is an Apache Chicksaw Cherokee poet, a novelist, who was raised outside of Denver. She published her first novel, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, with the publisher Curbside Splendor in 2014. It's a gritty book about Marguerite, a sharp-tongued, drug-dealing, 16-year-old Native American girl trying to get out of her life and find something new. Now Erica's in the process of trying to find a publisher for her second novel, which is about a teenage Native American boy who's in a gang. In addition to being an author, Erica is also a researcher. She's a creative writing professor at Western Illinois University and did her Ph.D. dissertation on the politics of reading and readership in American ethnic literature. So this is a really interesting time for Erica as a writer, being both a professor and trying to publish her second novel. Well, let's start off by talking about uh, your first book, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, which is about um, a teenage girl named Marguerite who is Native American. She's living in Colorado. Um, why is this a community and a person who you wanted to write about? I went to school in Idaho Springs, although I lived outside of it, slightly in the mountains. And I really felt like Denver and the outlying areas, it's just, you know, it has, there are a lot of, you know, people of Native American heritage um, that are there that are just ignored. I mean, there are so many folks um, from Oklahoma, um, so many Navajo folks, Lakota folks living in Denver and outlying areas. And, you know, Colorado sees itself as this very white, hikey, bikey, now marijuana, right, um, haven. And it just sort of bleaches itself out. And it, it's, it's always irritated me. And so I really felt like where I grew up needed, deserved to have some kind of voice. 
So the stories that you saw or that the lived experience that you had wasn't necessarily reflected in fiction and in novels about Colorado and in Colorado's sense of of self. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of great Native American lit, but the sort of conflict of res, <clears throat> res life, reservation life versus not reservation life, you know, I'm not saying that that isn't a huge issue and there are all kinds of ways to go about it, but I got really tired of it because over 70% of us live off the reservation and so many reviews of my novel, you know, tried to imagine that, you know, people in my novel, the whole novel is about loss of culture. And I think that's so American and it has nothing to do with what I was writing about. My, the folks in my novel um, speak a combination of Spanish, English, Lakota and Navajo. They go to powwow, their Native American church. They know what tribes they are. They know what families they are. Um, they have a sense of who they are. And I, I don't, I think that's just something that's superimposed that really irritates me. But what can you do? So, Erica, I saw you on a panel on diversity in fiction last year um, at a conference called BinderCon in Los Angeles, which is a conference for women writers. And I was really struck by what you said on the panel. Um, so I'll just read it back to you. It's You were talking about uh, your second novel, which is um, about a teenager who's in a gang who's, who's also Native American. And in that panel, you said, if you're a white guy, your book is called Coming of Age. If you're a woman of color, it's called YA. So can you just speak to that disconnect between how the the work of white male authors is more likely to be seen as, you know, grand coming of age, as whereas as you, your work can be pigeonholed in the role that race and gender plays in that? Even men of color, a lot of times their novels where their protagonists are teenagers, it's art. Mm-hmm. Well, can you talk a little bit more about how you think race and gender colored the reception of your book within the publishing industry? Do you feel like um, you had a harder time getting people interested in the book because of the race and gender of the protagonists? Um, or were people supportive of it because they wanted to see more books like this and were like, this is a story that hasn't been told? Um, with both of my books, I've had immense problems. I'm the first to say, look, I'm not necessarily a genius. Uh, certainly there's lots that I can learn. I'm always trying to be a better writer. But I see people who I think are equal to me um, having an easier time. I think, you know, there's just a lot of confusion. You know, there wasn't this, there wasn't a lot about spirituality. There wasn't a lot about, gee, it's, I'm so conflicted because I'm not from a reservation. I'm losing my culture. Um, and so I ended up going with Curbside Splendor, who's, and they're a great press. Um, they do very different, interesting stuff. And then the reception was, of the first novel was, it was vulgar and um, it was YA. Um, it was all these kinds of things that, were interesting to see. And then the second novel, my current agent is having hell on earth placing. Um, I, they, you know, all the rejections from the big presses are, you know, it's, it's too dark. It's too unrelentingly dark. People who published Donald Pollock um, found my work too dark, which I find absurd. Um, and <clears throat> then occasionally they want it to be more plot driven. And I do feel like if I were a white male, I would be lauded for having more internal dialogue, more internal conflict, more investment in language, less investment in bombastic plot. And I just, again, I think that's really unfair. I think sometimes if you're Native American and in an artistic way, you can still speak somehow, I guess, and this feels like I'm dissing other Native writers and I don't want to do that because many of them are my friends and I love them and I love their work. Um, but if somehow you're kind of seem anyway to be, you know, covering territory that seems familiar when it comes to a non-native audience in terms of what they think native life is like, people will just jump up and down and love it. Um, and I don't do that. The next novel, Matthew, is about Native American gangs. And they keep saying, oh, we want to, and they said this is my first novel too, oh, we so want to publish more Native Americans, but this, this is too dark or it isn't plot driven enough. And what they want, right, is something simple and palatable so that it's an exhibition of Native American culture that's easily digestible for a white audience. And I don't think that's art. You want to write something that represents um, your experiences and the stories that you want to have told. Um, but then the pushback you're getting is, no, it has to be native in this way. You know, we, we want to see this kind of native story. And I just, I kind of feel like if I were Jonathan Franzen or Brett Easton Ellis, right, and I'm kind of dating myself by making, you know, those names. It, the, it just the pressure would be different. I'm not saying it's not difficult to be published and to be recognized. So I don't want to come off as whiny in that sense. But when I see what the rejections actually state, um, 
And again, I have to say, um, even men of color, I don't think quite have it as bad um, somehow because I think they get to be sort of American masculine writer in some sense. And I, and I don't get that. And I think my female characters really scare and horrify <laughs> um, acquisitions editors and, and presses. And why, wh- why is that? Why are they scary? Um, I think they're very independent. They're loud mouthed. They're violent sometimes. Um, they're complicated. They're human. Um, they're, if they're not the main character, they're they're one of the main characters. Um, they're not spiritual. They're not conflicted about being Native American. They're just living their lives, and their lives are very gritty, and they're real, and they're dark, and they and I, I think people just want, especially Native American women, and I you know to be. Um, sort of fetishized in this very particular way that I just, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. I did not grow up that way. None of the native women I know who are like that, even if they're, you know, you know, spiritual in some sense or another. Um, and I just think, I think my characters upset, um, folks, which I always thought that was the purpose of art was to upset and disrupt, or at least one of the purposes. I also find a lot of times very mysterious and funny and weird what what white people think about Native Americans. They want us to look a certain way. <clears throat> they want us to validate the fact that they might be part Cherokee. They think we're really spiritual. They think we're all in a res. And if we're not, we're inauthentic. If they think we're, we're all dead, they think that we're from 500 years ago. And I just find that stuff incredibly strange. I, I It's so strange to be this mythical unicorn pony race of people um, when actually we're often walking right past you and around you And there's a real, you know, kind of like, I refuse to see this. I refuse to see this population as another minority group. And I think what happens is my work kind of wrecks that. It just says, nope, we're human beings and here we are. And that's just how I work. It's how I'm, I'm, I'm built to write. was writer and teacher Erica T. Worth. Hopefully you'll be able to read her second novel soon, but for now you can pick up her book Crazy Horse's Girlfriend. The role of writers is often to observe what people are like and then capture that reality in a way that says something new. But what if you're observing a community that's very different from your own? The discussion around a hit sociology book has brought this question into sharp focus recently. Sociologist Alice Goffman, who was white and in grad school at Princeton, spent six years living in West Philadelphia and documenting the lives of mostly African-American men. She took copious, meticulous notes about the fraught and racialized policing of the neighborhood. Her fieldwork turned into a book, On the Run, Fugitive Life in an American City, has been met with much more mainstream success than a lot of sociology texts. It's also led to a contentious discussion and pushback, most recently captured in a lengthy New York Times article called The Trials of Alice Goffman. The article by Gideon Lewis Krauss goes in-depth on the debates over her work. As Gideon writes, Above all, what frustrated her critics was the fact that she was a well-off, expensively educated white woman who wrote about the lives of poor black men without expending a lot of time or energy on what the field refers to as positionality. In this case, on an accounting of her own privilege. Goffman identifies strongly and explicitly with the confident social scientists of previous generations, and if none of those figures felt as though they had to apologize for doing straightforward, readable work on marginalized or discredited populations, she didn't see why she would have to. The discussion over On the Run centers on this really interesting question, which Gideon sums up. When the politics of representation have become so fraught, who gets to write about whom? I was curious about how this issue of how to write responsibly about communities you're not a part of is playing out in classrooms, specifically journalism classrooms. It turns out that this issue of on the run and the response to it had actually just come up in a journalism class at Northwestern. I'm Deborah Douglas, and I uh, am an adjunct lecturer at the Medill School at Northwestern University. Deborah, who is African-American, thinks about this issue all the time as she trains the next generation of journalists. Her class at Northwestern is a working newsroom, 
where students write and publish articles. And a lot of her students are interested in social justice and covering marginalized communities. Deborah had just read the New York Times article about On the Run when one of her students, Rebecca Frumkin, brought it up. My name is Rebecca Frumkin, and I'm a student at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Rebecca is a white, liberal arts-educated aspiring journalist who's written for a couple outlets, including McSweeney's. She's hoping to be a very conscientious journalist, which is why she was especially interested in the issues the debate about On the Run brings up. What I want to talk to Deborah and Rebecca about is not whether On the Run is right or wrong or good or bad, but the core issue of how writers can take on the task of writing about communities that aren't their own and the role that race plays in that. So Rebecca sat down and she just looked at me and said something to the effect of, do you believe white people can tell black stories or something like that? And I'm like, you read the Alice Hoffman story this morning, didn't you? (laughs) I said, I, I, I... I feel where you're coming from. But I said, well, what do you think? Before before I started spouting off, I wanted to know what Rebecca thought. And I felt like what she had to offer was really useful. So, Deborah, when people come to you because of your role in the op-ed project and also as a professor, when people come to you with stories that they want to tell that are about communities that aren't their own, so let's say young white people telling stories about older black communities, what sort of questions do you ask and what do you try to evaluate in that process to decide whether this is an article that should go forward? It's funny because I just read an email from a colleague of mine who talked about uh, the the just hatch syndrome, where because you've just discovered something, you think it's brand new and you have to run out and tell the world. Ah, uh, yeah, and I'm very you, familiar with that. <laughs> okay. And that you need to, you need to, you know, do basic research and, and interrogate that. And so I do have a lot of white students who come to me who want to go to marginalized communities because they do have a heart for social justice. And that is something I want them to be, I want to help them to be able to explore that in a journalistic way. Um, I, I do ask them questions about what they think is brand new here, <laughs> just from a basic research perspective. Um, I am concerned about the sort of Columbusing of certain types of stories like oh I just discovered Roseland well I grew up in Roseland so what what can you tell me as someone who actually grew up in this community uh, what can you tell me about the nuance so Deborah you, you use that term Columbusing I'm sure some people aren't familiar with it can you explain what that means it's a tendency of people namely white people to happen on a new phenomenon or something that's new to them it could be a word uh, some lingo, it could be uh, some clothing, a uh, clothing trend. Um, it could just be a lifestyle habit that uh, marginalized people have engaged in uh, for eons, and all of a sudden, it's it because it's been quote unquote discovered by a white observer. It becomes a discussion topic and worthy of uh, a cataloging uh, via all sorts of you know, forms of media. And uh, there are things that maybe uh, marginalized writers thought were worthy of writing about, but they were never given the opportunity to write about or talk about or pontificate about. But the the idea that our way um, of life um, and just the way that we have of holding ourselves in society is not really worthy of uh, inspection or celebration um, until someone some outsider validates us. Rebecca, in reading about On the Run, which is the book by the sociologist Alice Goffman, um, it brings up a lot of these issues about about how people write about other communities. In this case, Alice Goffman is a white sociologist and she was writing about um, this black neighborhood. um, And there's been a lot of criticism around that. And this is in some ways, this is in the tradition of what anthropologists do. They go into a community that's not their own. They spend some time there and then they write a big book or a big article about what that community is like. So why why do you think On the Run is getting um, so much scrutiny? Why, why now? Um, well, that's a great question. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, I guess um, anthropology and sociology, like by their very nature, are kind of othering. Um, the establishment that uh, Alice Goffman is a part of is, you know, a primarily white academic establishment. And the, the idea that this community, um, 
this working class to low income, predominantly um, black community is something to be studied, to be investigated, is something that hasn't necessarily been incorporated into, you know, um, the, the discourse of that institution suggests to me that, you know, there's an element of distancing to begin with. Like we need a sociologist to sort of go in here and examine this. We are currently experiencing um, what I think is this incredible shift in the cultural conversation about marginalized people and marginalized communities, whereby more, more people from those communities are speaking for themselves. So th- this all doesn't mean that people can't write about or report on communities that they're not a part of. Um, but it does make it clear that there are some considerations to think about and more things we should have on our radar as writers and as reporters and as journalists um, when we're covering communities that we're not familiar with or aren't from. Um, so I think, Re- Rebecca, since you're a student right now of journalism, if you're going into a community that you're not a part of, let's say you're assigned to travel to Ferguson to report on a protest, what kind of questions would you want to be keeping in mind and what kind of issues would you want to be keeping on your radar as a reporter to make sure that you're doing a good job and um, and re- representing people um, in a way that's that's uh, not offensive or alienating? I think positionality is a big part of my answer to that question. Um, and by positionality, I mean understanding my place in the world um, and knowing what features of that could potentially impose a handicap when I'm trying to, you know, explore different parts of the world um, and report on them. So um, I would be asking myself, okay, you know, what do I, you know, what have I experienced in my life? What do I know? Um, What have my friends told me about this issue? Um, Who of my friends are involved in this issue? Um, And you know, how can I remain, I guess, open and vulnerable? Um, And then um, I'd be asking myself, how can I amplify the voices of people who are involved in this? How many people can I talk to? So Deborah, as a journalism professor, what's what's your response there? What what advice do you give to students like Rebecca and other journalists in general who are covering communities that they're not a part of? What what do you tell them to keep in mind when they're reporting on this? You know, I don't really speak to them from the standpoint of, oh, you're going to this community that you're not a part of. Like, I don't speak to them in that way. But I just ask them to drill down and not just accept what they hear on the surface. Um, They still need to be uh, thoughtful and skeptical of situations that they go in. um, Because that's the bias you can bring into a community, too, that, oh, I know you're marginalized, so I'm going to open my big white heart to you and um, and let you say whatever it is you want to say. And that's not our that's not our role as journalists. <laughs> we need you know, we're drilling down for the truth, whatever the truth is, even if the truth is not pretty, even if the truth hurts. And so you might have to go into a so-called marginalized community and ask some really tough questions. But you need to give yourself permission to actually do that and just go beyond skimming the surface or go beyond uh, accepting an echo of something that you've already read that sort of like fits this idea or picture of what the story really is and just be open to to nuance. What do you think that this discussion around Alice Goffman's work on the run is illuminating about um, how we report on and write about race? What can we take away from from this controversy around this book and this discussion about it. You really, really, really have to leverage whatever privilege you have to amplify marginalized voices. So you have to recognize that, you know, as a white person or as a college educated person or as a man or whatever, as a cisgender person, there are people on the other end of the spectrum who are not getting the opportunities you're getting because of their um, identity. So you have to find a way to bring those voices to the fore um, however you can. Deborah, what's what's your takeaway from this? What do you think we can learn about the discussions around On the Run? Well, the first thing is that um, among the discussions around my, my various, my very serious writerly friends, is that this work is a phenomenal work. Like Rebecca, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, 
but I will. But my critique goes beyond Alice herself to the gatekeeper. My critique is about uh, providing an on-ramp for other voices of people who actually come from those communities and who can uh, see a finer nuance uh, just walking in the front door um, and giving them the opportunity to be able to tell those stories. was Professor Deborah Douglas and journalism student Rebecca Frumkin. You can follow their work on Twitter at DeadlineDD and JeansValJeans, respectively. So what's our takeaway from these complicated discussions? I think it's important for us to think about, as readers and writers, what we're not seeing. If you're white, our culture reinforces the idea that your experience is not only, quote, normal, but often the only experience worth talking about. That leads people over and over and over to think of writing from other perspectives as being offensive. It should be taken out of school libraries. It leads white people over and over and over to be dismissive of writers of color who are telling the stories of their communities. And it leads publishers over and over and over to overlook and diminish authors who are writing books that don't fit with the industry's assumptions about what a racial or ethnic group is actually like. And it can lead white journalists, and that includes me, to burst into a community and think they discovered it or are suddenly an expert and should write the definitive story on it. A lot of times, writing about race means taking a moment to think about what's not being written and who's not getting the chance to write it. Thank you so much to everyone who was part of today's show, including Kristen from the ALA, the author Lisa Lee for letting us share her essay, writer Ari Laurel, author Erica Wirth, and journalism professor Deborah Douglas, and writer Rebecca Frumkin. Thank you so much. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker, Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org slash podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>